we pick up in verse number 5. So up to this point, we've covered four verses. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So building upon the claim that the condemnation of these ungodly men were written about long ago in verse number 4, Jude is going to go on in pretty great detail to describe these false teachers. By the time we get to verses 14 and 16, uh, Jude is going to explain how God will execute His judgment upon the ungodly and their ungodly deeds. In verses 11 through 13, he will compare these ungodly lives to some notoriously rebellious individuals in the Old Testament. But first, in verses 5 through 10 actually, Jude is going to explain how these ungodly persons are destined for condemnation. He's going to compare them to the Old Testament examples that he provides to us who had rejected the authority of God in their lives. And so we begin in verse number 5 today. It says, verse 5 begins with, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. Notice how Jude acknowledges that they already knew what it was that he was about to tell them. That's why he is reminding them rather than revealing something new unto them. Which means that often what we need is not information to be discovered, but rather sometimes what we need is reminders of the truths that we already know. And so in order to enable believers to contend for the faith once delivered to them, Jude begins by recalling three biblical examples in which God judged those that had rejected and departed from his ways. And so we'll pick up with that first example. The first example is seen in the Exodus. So back to verse number five. Now I desire to remind you, though you already know things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Egypt is mentioned as a reminder of the fact that the Israelites who left Egypt were not faithful. An entire generation, a generation of of fighting men aged 20 to 50, an entire generation died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. The writer of Hebrews talks about the danger of unbelief in Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse number 12. It says to take care, brethren, that there not be in 
any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me. For who provoked Him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So even though the Lord saved the Israelites out of Egypt, He subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And that verb destroyed is talking about a physical death. Death came upon those who didn't believe. I mean, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 13. At the Exodus, there are over between two to three million individuals who are fleeing from Egypt. That, that began the journey from Egypt into the promised land. And yet, from those two to three million individuals, how many of them actually entered into the promised land? The answer, two. Two. It was only Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else of the two to three million died in the wilderness. Forty years of perpetual death. It would average some 150 funerals a day for 40 years in order for that entire generation to die in the wilderness. Because Israel rebelled and refused to enter the promised land, God condemned that generation of Israelites to, to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until they died off. That's Numbers chapter 14. Even Moses and Aaron were not allowed to enter into the promised land. And the reason why they're not allowed to enter into the promised land is the same sin. It's the sin of unbelief. You, you can read about them in Exodus chapter 17. Their, their sin of unbelief is seen in the command that the Lord gave them when the people came to Him to, to gripe and complain that they had no water. This had happened before. The first time the Israelites complained about the lack of water, God gave them the instruction to strike a rock and water will pour forth and the people will have something to drink. And that's what they did. And then we find ourselves all at it again. Exodus chapter 17. Guess what? The people are unhappy again. And they're complaining. There's no water. They're complaining. It would have been better for us to have been left in Egypt, to die in Egypt, than to be out here suffering and struggling. The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, and He gives them instructions this time. This time the Lord tells them that they're to speak to the rock. 
speak to the rock, and from it, before their eyes, I will pour out its waters. However, instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock again. Why does he strike the rock? Maybe because he, he, he went back to what he trusted and the way that it was done before. Don't know. But what we do know from the text in Numbers chapter 12, verse number 20, the Lord said, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. What can we learn from this first example? It's ultimately, disobedience was birthed from a place of unbelief. So, so it's not enough for us to just go through the motions. It's not enough for us to give the, the appearance of outward obedience without having an inward devotion and commitment. God desires both total obedience and complete devotion. And Jude says that what happened to Israel is going to happen to those false teachers and to those that follow the false teachings. The destruction that fell upon the unbelievers of Israel will also fall upon those that deny or forsake Christ. That's example number one. Then there's a second example. Verse number 6. Oh, an interesting example this one is. Uh, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now there is some uh, debate as to the reference that Jude is drawing this information from here in verse number 6. Some people hold the view that Judas is referring to uh, some uh, specific information that's contained in a non-canonical book called the book of Enoch. And so I will be clear, I do not believe that Jude is referring to the book of Enoch here in verse number 6. One of the strongest reasons why I don't believe that is because in verse number 14, you're going to see Jude give credit to something from Enoch. So why identify him in verse 14 and not identify him in verse number 6? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But the reality is, I believe that what Jude is actually talking about, we find the evidence of this in the Scriptures that we have. More specifically, we find it addressed in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is an also complicated chapter in the Bible. If you're not familiar with it, enjoy um, reading it and dissecting it and ingesting it for yourself because it is... It is a whopper of a chapter in the Bible. Let me share with you a few of those verses as it begins. In Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Goes on verse number three says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, 
were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. There are some interesting things that are shared in this six verses. For instance, how do the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, verse number 4, how are they related to the sons of God and the daughters of men in verses 1 and 2? I will be clear to give you my personal opinion and belief on this. The connection between the two, I personally believe that there is actually no connection between the two. The only connection is that they are simply being mentioned as being on the earth in the days of the events of verses 1 and 2. They're just there at the same time. And also afterwards, it says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. In what days? Well, the days that the sons of God saw the daughters of men being beautiful and taking them for their wives. They were there on the earth in those days and also afterwards. Now, there's a greater debate that that happens when it comes to the understanding of, well, who are the sons of God? What does that phrase mean? To whom is, are we talking about here when we see the phrase, the sons of God? And so throughout church history, there has been three major interpretations to that phrase, the sons of God, here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Each one of those interpretations have some, some have more strengths, each one have weaknesses, and some have greater weaknesses. The three generally uh, understood interpretations of that phrase would be, first of all, uh, some interpret that to mean simply kings and rulers. Uh, Another interpretation is that uh, what's being mentioned is the godly line of Seth. But the godly line of Seth is who's being referred to as being the sons of God. Then there's the third interpretation This is probably the most commonly held view, and it is the view that your pastor holds. And that is that the sons of God are actually angelic beings. Angels. We read about these angelic beings in other places in Scripture as well. In fact, as if you're reading through the Bible together chronologically, we've read about them in the book of Job. I want you to notice in Job chapter 1, Verse number 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, what are we talking about? Are we talking about kings and rulers uh, came to present themselves before the Lord? Are we talking about the, the godly line of Seth came and presented themselves before the Lord? Or are we talking about angelic beings? Angelic beings came and presented themselves before the Lord. And then it says that Satan also came among them. And so I believe that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 and in Job chapter 1, I believe that they're referring to angelic beings. 
In the verse that you see on the screen, the question is often asked, well, who are these angelic beings? Are we talking about fallen angels or are we talking about faithful answer, angels? Well, my answer to that is it really doesn't matter in the context of, this, of the verse because what's being highlighted is that the supreme fallen angel, Satan, goes before the throne of God in order to question and to gain permission to wreak havoc upon Job and his life. And so, what's the connection? In Jude chapter 6, Jude explains that the sin of the angels was a failure for them to stay in their proper abode. They failed to stay within their own domain. Because the angels departed their proper realm, God has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So Jude's message is clear for us. Whenever we find ourselves given in to the temptation to try to live autonomously, to try to remove ourselves from the authority of God or God's Word, well, whenever we're, we're seeking to do as we please, striving to live our lives outside of the full authority of God and His Word, well, when we do that, then we're waging war against heaven. And we are in danger of His judgment. And Jude further explained that these angels abandoned their proper abode. And that verb abandoned in Greek means to leave behind or to desert. It, it carries with it the idea of leaving something or someone behind with the intent of never claiming it again. And so he uses the verb to communicate the finality of their act of leaving. So rather, these angels, rather than remaining in their proper place of service, these angelic beings cross a divinely appointed boundary in order to engage in sexual immorality. And I believe that we, we see a connection between this particular form of immorality we see a connection with it in verse number 7. There's a transition that happens from verse 6 and verse 7, and I think it connects the two. And so in verse number 7, we see the third example that Jude gives to us of God's judgment upon the unbelieving and the ungodly. Look how it starts in verse 7. Just as. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they... In the same way as these, in the same way as who? Who are the these? The angelic beings in verse number 6. So just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So when Jude says, in the same way as these, he is grammatically connecting the activity of the angels in verse number 6 to the activity or the ungodly behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities here in verse number 7. You can read about those. In fact, another plug for reading through the Bible together. 
Uh, this past Wednesday, you would have read the account. We covered Genesis 18 and 19. And there we have the record, the story of Lot and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, all of that is summarized in this one verse. And he condenses it down and says, As these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Phrase strange flesh is an interesting one. It could literally have been translated as a different kind of flesh. And so this seems to relate to verse 6 and verse 7. It seems to relate to the angels and women, according to what we've learned in Genesis chapter 6, as well as the activity the homosexuality that was occurring in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jude clearly saw that there was a link between the, the angels and the sins of the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's because of their sexual immorality that these cities serve as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The fate of unbelievers and the fate of unbelievers in Genesis 19 foreshadows the fate of those that deny God's truth and that ignore His Word. And so Jude has skillfully, in my opinion, given us three powerful examples to, to, to mark and to, to watch and to take notice of. Think about it in example number one. The sin of Israel was their rebellious unbelief. An example number two, the sin of the angels was their rebellion against the throne of God, the authority of God. An example number three, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was rebelling against the will of God and the Word of God. And so unbelief, resistance against the throne of God, Resisting against the authority of God. An all-out pursuit of sin and indulgence. Those were sins that characterized the false teachers that Jude is addressing in his letter. And, And so the conclusion should be obvious to us. The conclusion is, the ungodly will be judged. Meanwhile, God's children must be faithful. Just hang in there. Be alert. Be aware. Don't be deceived. Protect yourself. Protect the body so that false teachers don't creep in among us and wreak havoc in our lives and in this church. Like soldiers, we are to always be on duty 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There is no rest. We must not be careless and complacent. We must stand firm on the authority of God's Word. We must hold it dear into our hearts and into our lives. We must see to it that no false teachers creep in among us. One of the biggest ways for us, the question, how do you recognize? How do we know if someone's a a false teacher or not. I would say the best way to guard ourselves against falsehood 
and false teachers is simply by knowing the truth. You can detect the counterfeit when you know the real thing. Therefore, we must have a high value on the Word of God. We must be determined to be great students of His Word. We must be disciplined in the reading of His Word, the studying of His Word, and the living out of His Word in this world. So it takes determination. It takes effort. It takes great diligence among us all. We must know God's Word. We must have the courage and the conviction to defend it, to stand up for it. Every church must consistently and clearly declare the truth, and every church must consistently and clearly denounce error. May we have a whole, a whole appreciation to God's Word. In other words, may we value and appreciate what God says to us from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We have enough graciously provided to us by our Lord. We have enough in His Word that we might know Him and that we might know how to live for Him in His glory in this world. So may we value it. May we treasure it. May we fully submit and surrender our lives unto it. And may we encourage one another in the day-to-day living out of God's word and truth in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this church, for your people, and for the privilege of, and the joy of being able to gather together. And God, as we study through your word and as we're working through this book, God, help us to, to have a firm understanding on the importance of standing on your word. God, may we not be distracted by other people or other things in this life, but may we be focused in on knowing you and living for you. And in this place and in this room and at this very moment, Father, There are decisions and commitments that ought to be made. There are those that need to submit and surrender their lives unto your Son. And we pray that today would be a day of salvation in those lives. There are those that are caught up in sin and deceit. And Father, I pray that your conviction would rain heavy upon our lives to to draw us out of that we would have the courage and the conviction to confess it, to repent from it, and to move forward in faith and love and with grace. God, there are some that have been great attenders to this church. Father, I pray that they would make a firm commitment to become a member of this place, to enter into an official recognition of, of respect, submission, accountability, that we would value that in our lives, even when it's difficult, Father. And God, that all of us would find our place of service for you and for your glory. God, during this time of response, I pray that you are pleased by the decisions that are made. Help us, Father. Help us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.